The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Delia Efron. Uh, Delia is an American best-selling author, screenwriter, and playwright. Uh, she's also the daughter of screenwriters. Her movies include You've Got Mail, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, great film, uh, she has written several novels. She writes for the New York Times. But her new book is called Sister, Mother, Husband, Dog, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. This is a memoir. Welcome to the show, Delia. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Great to be talking to you. Okay, your book is described as a memorable collection of personal and poignant stories and essays which are anchored by the remembrance of losing your older sister, Nor- your is she your older sister or your younger sister? No, she's my older sister. Older yes. sister, Nora, yeah. So um, I read the book, fantastic book, uh, you know, one of those that you can't put down, read through oh, the night. Oh, thank you. Yeah. But I guess my first question is, I mean, how difficult was it for you to write this book about your sister? Um, because she really recently, I mean, I say recently, you know, uh, died. Yes, I... It was really a salvation for me because I was very lost afterwards. And, I mean, my older sister, and she was such a powerful and wonderful older sister, and our lives were so tangled up because we, I mean, I always we, we stole lines from each other the way other sisters borrowed dresses. But it was a kind of... Um, we collaborated. She was she was there. I mean, she was three years older, so I never spent a day on this earth without my sister Nora, and I just never expected to spend a day without her here. And so I would go into my office in the afternoons, and it was a way to be together. It was just to write about us and to write about what we sort of the recent past, which were the, were the last times together, but also to really review sisterhood, which, by the way, is something I've thought about my whole life. I mean, I think of sister as one of my primary identities. I have, there are three, there are four sisters in our family, and so sisterhood is something that I, gosh, I had just been thinking about. By the time I started writing, I was, um, it was just, it wasn't hard. It was actually comforting. So it, was kind of, it kept you connected, or it keeps you connected yes, it to did. Nora. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're talking about sisterhood, and I really don't have an understanding of sisterhood, because I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I have uh, two brothers and three sons, an ex-husband and a boyfriend. Oh, you so are. My, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have no idea what I'm talking about I, here. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I think all siblings, I mean, brothers or sisters, it's, a, it's essentially an uncivilized relationship. Yeah. 
I mean, my first memory of Nora was of her biting into a tomato in such a perfect way as to squirt juice in my eye. So, and I think that there is, I mean, I can't speak for boys, but with, with sisterhood, there's a, there's an, you're very close and, and we depended on each other, but there's always a competition. There's always some sense of, of uh, that sibling beast is always alive and well, even as you're kind of inseparable at the same time. And also, that I tried to get at this. There's ways that if you're a sister, you are so prepared to have girlfriends. And yet, I made my girlfriends almost better versions of my sisters, people I didn't have to compete with, people that were easier and I was slightly more comfortable with. Because sisters are, there's a kind of, of ruthlessness about the way they look at each other or talk to each other. You can be rude to a sister in a way that you wouldn't even dream of being rude to a friend. Of course, I'm trying to think of an ex- of an example, yeah, and nothing comes to mind because yeah. uh, I was such a good sister. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, okay, so this is this the sibling rivalry, and you're right. I think it's sibling rivalry is there, whether it's sisters or brothers and sisters or whatever. But like with it's how, there, but there's all this other stuff there too. There's all this deep love. There's it's almost like having an arm in a way. It's like it's like you're missing a limb when your sister. And you lose your sister. It's it's really that they're they're that much. I think one reason why you're so uncivilized is that they feel like slight extensions of yourselves. You know, you know how much you are alike in everything. But at the same time, I think that no no kids have the same parents. That you you're born into a family at a different time. That your parents, I mean, they fantasize that they treat you all equally, but of course they relate completely differently to each child. And you're born into the marriage at a different time. So I think while you share the same parents, you don't necessarily have the same parents. I I mean, I agree with you. And I think when you talk to your siblings, sisters and or brothers, and you're I know with my brothers reminiscing about something that went on in the family, uh, we have completely different perspective on the thing. We, uh, sometimes we're not even sure we're talking about the same incident or this, you know, in terms of what happened. So I think you're right. It's it we are you know our birth order is important. All of those things, and obviously you, your older sister, um, are you in the middle? Well, I mean, I consider myself the one that was the middle child. There are four of us, but I was the one who wanted everyone to get along and who spent my my life kind of trying to, you know, mediate, you know, which is what middle children, they just do. They always yeah, so you're do. the peacemaker. You're the one who wants yeah, to make everything Yeah, I was. I'm right. sort of giving it up now, but yeah. I was probably <laughs> it's time a time to give it up, time. yeah. Uh, it seems like a good thing to give up because it's so exhausting. Um, But, you know, there was this one thing, because one of the things I wrote about in the book was was a piece about my mother, which was so difficult for me to write, because she was, on the one hand, the most dynamic and um, exacting kind of woman, and on the other hand, that was what she was like in the day, and then at night she just went to pieces, and she she was... terrible, terrible, sad alcoholic at night. So she was like two people, like Jekyll and Hyde. And my, she had said to my sister Nora on her deathbed, she said, take notes. 
and Nora had just spun this out into this thing about how great it was. And on her, and she said to me, I hope you never tell anyone what happens here. Right. You know, so talk about different messages to different children um, at different times. So who would you say, uh, uh, were you closer to your mother? I mean, you're No, about- I was not. I was not closer to my mother, but I don't think any of us were close to my mother. And, you know, and you do. I mean, that is a... a- a chapter in the book about your mother, and I'm really curious, is how, how do you recon- reconcile your mother here? Is, she's an alcoholic with all the stuff that goes along with that, and that you, for you, and you, you say, I mean, she's someone who had such an, a positive influence on your writing yeah, positive, and encouraged yeah. you. How do you do both? Because parent, you know, well, I think will... that you know that's why the piece is called "Why I Can't Write About My Mother." Yeah, I think that even though I of course go on to do it, mm-hmm. is that who is she? And is there some way in which she's essential? You know, I can tell you all these things about her, but do I actually know why she was that person, why she could be so, how she was such an extraordinary woman so ahead of her time in terms of having dreams for her daughters to be so successful and everything, and at the same, and for herself, she, um, she was a successful screenwriter. And then at the same time, she's this, this person, almost a mad woman. At night, and I thought, I mean, to this day, I don't, I can make sense of all sorts of things. I can tell you what happened to me because of it. Um, I can tell you some facts about her, but I can't tell you who she was. I mean, there's an unknowable quality. Um, do you think that's true of all mothers and parents, that there's some way that they aren't quite, I don't mean this extreme, but I mean, do you think there's some way that, that, their children don't really know them, or do you think that's not true? I think that's very true. I mean, I, I think in terms of, I mean, my experience and my own mother, who is in her 90s, <clears throat> I mean, it's always evolving. And I see her in a different, you know, when I became a mother, then I see her differently as a mother, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and as my children have grown up, I, you know, I relate that to the way she taught, treated us. So it, it, it's always, my picture of her is always evolving. Mm-hmm, Yeah. I think that's true. And, you know, and whether I can, I don't think, I think it's very difficult to, I mean, you don't completely know, I don't think you know your mother as an adult to an adult. No, you're always the child, and so that that puts up some barriers. I mean, it's very... And their marriage is essentially hidden. I mean, first of all, marriage is one of those things. Almost nobody knows what's going on in someone else's marriage. It's one of the great little secrets of life. (laughs) But you certainly don't know really what's going on in your parents' marriage. Uh, no, you think you do, but you don't. Yeah, I know. And yeah, so it's very complicated, uh, mm. obviously, and very complex. Yeah, no, I mean, I love writing about family and stuff like that because I just think it's re- I just think it's so endlessly interesting. Try, I mean, I really tried to be in this book as honest. I always think, why are you writing if you can't one try to make sense of things and to so that and Two, to be as honest as possible. As, what was the of most course, difficult also coming thing about... from my family, I always have to be as funny as possible, too. Yeah, I was so those say, are the three to... rules. <laughs> you have the humor, but when you say it's difficult to be honest, what topic or would, in writing this book was the most difficult in terms of trying to be honest? Like where you had a struggle with it. I got to tell you. It was the one we're talking about, about my mother. Okay. I, I was tossing and turning at night. I, my, my mother... I was always up at night as a kid because 
because my parents fought so much at night. And so sleeping is something I just love. And I'm, I'm just a champion sleeper. Once I got out of that house, I, I really took to sleeping <laughs> in a great way. And when I was writing that piece, I could not sleep. I was right back, you know, somehow in that house again. And, and yet I think... It's so, I think so many of us have parents who, for one reason or another, either because they're self-centered, troubled, or whatever, can't, can't parent them. And the confusions of who's the parent, you know, is, yes. is, is a big deal. And I was trying to struggle with that. So that was rough for me. On the other hand, the piece I wrote about my 20s, which I completely blame my total wasted 20s on this movie called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, uh-huh. which is a romantic comedy <laughs> I saw when I was 10 and destroyed my life. Um, that was so much fun to write. I was just happy all the time. So there were pieces that just made me so happy. Yeah, well, you talk about that. You can just do what you want in your 20s and it doesn't count. I mean, it does count, but well, it doesn't Well, in your count. head it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I certainly made enough of a mess, but I just think there's some way that you secretly know that the odds are you can waste an entire decade and still have a life. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't start to fit. You know, when I was about 27 or 8, I started to realize, oh, my gosh, you know, I have one life and I better figure it out. And it, it, things got very real toward the end of my 20s. But I want to go back. I don't have to go back to it, but I want to still focus on the idea of having a mother who's an alcoholic and how you and your sisters and you have so not you know it's not just that you were able to go out and get a job and do well and get married or have children but I mean you're all super successful and how does that happen because you get as a social worker and I see other families with alcoholic parents mm. and they end up being alcoholics themselves and you know kind of falling into that abyss and they don't do well so what was it in your family obviously you all had to be bright or have some intelligence but besides that I mean how can you explain well that? Um, yeah. first of all we had money mm-hmm. okay and that has to make your life easier in some way that we don't like to acknowledge. It's absolutely true, right? Yeah. I mean, there was a stability in the house because of that. Uh, and um, for me, my parents, this didn't, this didn't begin for me until I was 11 years old. There was a very clear before and after in my life. And But, you know, I have younger sisters. I can't really speak for them, and they, they managed to find their lives as well. But, I mean, I had 11 years of, of pretty solid, stable family life. And that's a lot of years. Um, but, but, you know, you're looking at it from the outside. I mean, in fact, I had a ton of therapy. In fact, I had a very messed up first marriage. Uh, in fact, I didn't start my career until my 30s, and my sister Amy didn't become a writer until I started writing at about 27. My sister Amy, who's younger than me, started writing at 37, and my sister Hallie started writing at 47. So everybody put their destinies off quite a bit for reasons that they would know and I don't. I mean, certainly I could say it was because my parents were so successful and Nora was. It it became more and more, and then I became successful. So each person had more to bite off to Uh sort of say, am I going to try this? And suppose I'm the only one in the family that, you know, uh, it doesn't work for. But so... But my mother gave us a really powerful, both my parents did, sense of 
that we had futures, that we, we were raised in California. We, we should leave this place. She did not. She was not into the palm trees. And we should go back to New York, and, uh, which we had never been to, in fact. It wasn't like we went back there. She just raised us with this idea that <laughs> the East was the place for us to go, East Young Girl. And uh, I moved back to New York, and I, I must say I walked into the city and knew immediately that it was where I belonged. So I had a powerful attachment to New York almost instantly, which I can't even explain. Yeah, well, you, you did know, write about it's, that it's all kind of, I mean, what I mean is you look at it, one of the things I write about is, and one of the reasons I wanted to write about it, is that I have lifetime anxiety from that. I am never calm. I worry about everything. I Even worry after all that, your therapy? Oh, yeah. I mean, you spend your childhood worrying, trying to make people, trying to imagine that you have some move to make that's, not gonna, that's gonna affect your parents' behavior, which of course you have absolutely no moves to make, you know. Yep. They're gonna do what they're gonna do. But as a child, you think, God, maybe, you know, maybe there's, if I, if I'm really good, if I'm really this, if I'm really that, and, and then you're trying to protect yourself, so you're thinking, let's see, what does that mean that they just snapped? What does that mean that the jacket got thrown over the chair in a particularly angry way? Are they going to are they going to get into an argument? And you become a watcher. And uh, I didn't understand. There was no Al-Anon when I was a kid. But when I went to a couple of meetings, I'm not ever attended regularly, but I have certainly gone to them now and then. I think that um, you know those. I realized immediately. Well, everybody was just was just not trusting, worried, anxious, um, double-checking everything, certain that if they're looking right, something's coming at them from the left. I mean, I began to see all these things so that you develop these things as a child. You know, I mean, I say you come by it honestly, which is to say it's a coping mechanism. It's a way to survive. And then when you're older and you're not in that house anymore, you it's habit. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you have the same behaviors. You don't know what yeah, to expect. Exactly. As a kid, you're looking around. You have to be on guard. But right, did you yeah. all, as sisters, have, like, well, let's take Nora. Did she have the same uh, reaction as you did? I mean, were well, you all? I don't think that she had any of the, I mean, she always thought of me. I write about this. You know, I was the sister who, she, she always thought, oh, she, you're such a worrier. It drove her crazy in the way that sisters can drive each other crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I began to realize, well, of course I know what this comes from. You know, why didn't she have a I don't know why. She's four years older. She was out of the house much faster. Um, so she's a different personality. She wasn't a child who was trying to make, who thought, thought of herself as a mediator anyway. So, um, but, you know, one of the points I make is that I'm really, except that I, I write a lot about sibling, you know, what it meant for Nora and me to be sisters and what it means to be a sister, and what our sort of collaborative life was like and as children and then as adults when we made movies together and everything. But I, I really do say that my feelings about fa- my family are mine, that I cannot speak for them. And not only that, they're writers, of course, they will write for the, their, their own versions, but my story isn't theirs, and I don't really feel right speculating. Okay, so it's your... Then let's... Talk about. I kind of want to move to this because I saw your your play, which I lo- love Lost and what I wore. Oh yes. and you did collaborate with your sister on that. Mm-hmm. And so I was just curious, um, what 
you know, what the process was in doing that. That was, when I saw it, it, the whole audience, this was on Broadway, was all women except for my boyfriend and my youngest son. Oh, yes, our favorite kind of audience. Yeah, so there were, and there was one other man <laughs> well, in the about theater. women in their clothing, and, and I mean, it's based on this, it's called Love Loss and What I Wore, and it's based on a book by Eileen Beckerman. It's a wonderful little memoir where she draws her clothes and talks about what they mean, and I just think it's, the idea is if you ask a woman about her clothes, she tells you about her life. And so these were stories of women and their clothes. And, of course, it ends up being about everything from falling in love to proms to divorces to even uh, marriage. And, it, God, there's a wonderful piece in it on uh, about my friend Gerilyn Lucas and breast cancer. And it just, it just evokes uh, how frustrating it is to be in the, you know, I have nothing to wear, I have nothing to wear, all these moments that women share bra shopping. And it was just such a, it was our last collaboration, so I write a lot about it in the book because it was so um, sweet and precious because I knew, Nora was sick then, so I knew it it had a kind of heightened meaning for me that we got to work together. But it was also a perfect thing because we both did our separate things and then we had pieces in the show that we wrote separately. There were pieces we wrote together. And then also all our friends contributed stories. So it became such a celebration of life and of my friendships with girlfriends. Yeah, and, and it was just fantastic. I was thinking about the one that, um, the pocketbook. Uh, uh, no, that's a classic, piece. Nora. That's, a, that's her piece. It's hysterical, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it was. It was hysterical. Yeah, it's called Why I Hate My Purse. Why yeah. I Hate My Purse, exactly. Right. And, you know, it appealed to women from, you know, 16 to yeah. 86, and they were all in the audience. So, yeah, that was a, a, a great show. But uh, it was really written for women. We weren't really thinking, oh, boy, let's Hope we can get men. We, we, what we loved was that we changed the cast every month, and so five new women actors came on, and they were all wonderful. We became friends with so many of them. And then the audiences were so fabulous because it was such a powerful, you experienced it, a powerful yeah. connection between the audience and the and the women. Yeah, that's a yeah. really, that show has such meaning for me in my life. And by the way, for everyone who took part in it. You have another call? Not for me. And I'm hoping <laughs> my husband will pick it up right pick away, up but you never know. Yeah. Oh, you know why he's not? Because it's a because it's one of those calls. Oh, one of the calls that you don't want to that answer. That comes in yeah. over and over and over again. Over again. Yeah, I'm getting more and more. They can those. put you in a rage. Yeah, and they do, or they put me yeah. in a rage. Um, one other topic that you cover in the book is also, uh, you know, am I uh, Jewish enough? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Being Jewish, I'm curious. I want to talk about that. Yeah. Um. Well, I was touring for the um, Jewish Book Circuit, which is mostly October, November, but sort of all year. And I had never, I was raised in a completely non-Jewish family and had converted by accident to Christianity twice, which um, were very, my, some of my favorite stories of things that have happened to me in my life. And suddenly, everywhere I go, I'm being asked what it means, to, what kind of Jew I am, what does it mean to me? And I have to say, I hadn't really thought about it. And I, so I started to write about it because it was really 
it was really making me laugh. And I feel people are so uptight about religion these days. I mean, they are just so... It's become this lightning rod, you know. Uh, and I just... So I wrote this really funny piece about... about um, being Jewish and what kind, I mean, people would say, are you, okay, are you a food Jew? And I'd say, what's a food Jew? <laughs> and, and, and then I'd have to think, no, no, I'm not a food Jew. Then I decided I was a book Jew because we had so many books and just Jewish people, one of the great things about the culture is it, it does worship books. But I also wanted to write about the time I converted by accident at a Billy Graham rally and, um, and my godson when uh, we went into the church and they uh-huh. said, uh, the minister was giving us instructions, and she was saying the three questions we had to answer. And she said, um, you know, do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Savior? And I was completely, I almost fainted, you know. <laughs> and uh, anyway, there's all sorts of stories of my my tour through religion. That, I think, is hysterical. I mean, um, you know, converting or, you know, by mistake or whatever it is, that's a, that, yeah. I wanted you to talk about that one, but have we we only have a few more minutes, so I want to have we left out anything that you really want to tell us in, in in terms of the book? And uh, I mean, besides, everyone should get the book. I bookstores everywhere online. You can go, and you have a website as well. Yeah, DeliaEffron dot com. Yeah, you can order it through my website. Um, well, no, you know, it's just all my major food groups, really. Um, you know, sister, mother, husband, dog. And um, and it's all my observations about life and how much I hate my bank. Doesn't everyone hate their bank? Everyone hates their bank. I yeah, hate they my do because they get no interest whatsoever. Right. Um, and um, I mean, it's just it's sort of very it's a very emotional book. Um, and what I guess the as a writer, your, uh, I, what was the response from your sisters? My sisters, well, we, you know, because we're all writers, we have a family rule that you, I mean, not, it's not like we made the rule, but it's there. And the rule is that you have to be supportive of whatever writing the other person does. And mostly this works, you know, and so everybody, so my sisters just, you know, they love the book. Um, but if Wait, they but didn't love they the have book, to be supported. This they wouldn't be, be allowed not to yeah. uh, say anything, really. I mean, that's the thing. And we try to respect each other. Well, writers write. That's what they do. They have to make sense of their life. They're right. And, and all my sisters know that's the way it is. What about when you're writing the book? I mean, I understand after the book is written and you've published it, you don't need your sisters to criticize it or critique it. But in the mm-hmm. process, do you ever... I mean, you and Nora collaborated, but do you ever do that with your other sisters? I mean, call them up, hey, what do you think about this, or or no? No, I don't. I have um, several close girlfriends who are writers, and my husband's a writer, and those are my people I go to as I'm in process. If I can't work out something, I call one of my girlfriends, or I, I bore my husband over dinner for, you know, uh-huh. make him listen to all my problems. So that, that's <laughs> mainly been my, um, and Nora and I, because we collaborated, we did exchange work a lot. Though so I never did with my books. You know, it was, I loved getting approval from Nora so much that sometimes I just didn't show her things to break my habit. 
You know, it was yeah. interesting. I realized that when I was writing. Writing the book, yeah. Yeah, I well, realized. Well, it's a fantastic, I mean, I hate to say goodbye, but we have, the next guest is coming on, so we do have to say well, goodbye. Well, I am really sad about that. Yeah, I am too. I really enjoyed talking <laughs> to you. And, <laughs> Thank um, you. It's been Delia a pleasure. Delia Efron, I want to mention the book again, Sister, Mother, Husband, Dog. Um, buy it online, bookstores everywhere. Um, it's, a, it's a great book. And Thank not you. just for women. <laughs> no, no, no. No. That's, no. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're going to say goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. Coming, yes. Uh, we're also going to take a break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio, The Catherine Zox Show. Next guest is Bob Forrest. His new book is Running with Monsters. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. You. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And joining me this morning is Running With Monsters author, Bob Forrest. And I think for the intro, Bob is here with us. Uh, I am just going to read how uh, a little passage about, and it's his own description of himself. He says, who am I? I'm the guy with the horn-rimmed glasses and the hat that you've seen on VH1's popular TV show, Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. I'm also known in some circles as the Junkie Whisperer, and it's a title I worked hard to earn, says he. I've helped addicts from all walks of life and have offered them support, encouragement, and guidance based on my own firsthand personal experiences as I navigated the stormy seas of my own drug and alcohol dependency. And now Bob is also not only an author, but he's a certified addiction specialist and counselor and, of course, a musician. Welcome to the show, Bob. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thanks for having me. Boy, that sounds awfully important, (laughs) but I'm just a guy trying to help uh, with a terrible problem in America. It's a terrible problem. Well, then you're the guy to help. I mean, you've experienced it. You've 
helped, and then you've, you know, you've done it in a big way, obviously, with Dr. Drew on Celebrity Rehab. So where should we start? I mean, you wrote this book, if that's what you it's all about running with monsters um is the title obvious or should i ask you you know what does the title mean running with monsters well my band in the 80s was called Thelonious monsters so it was kind of a play on that and kind of a plan running with scissors and you know i got i always have a sense of humor in whatever i'm doing it's not so serious as <laughs> like all that but you know the the thing that i've been most concerned with is this is in my day, and that's what the book is about, like my father, you know, lived through the Depression. I'm 52 years old. So there was a, a different mentality back then uh, that, of how you raise children, though we were, you know, ended up going on drug ways or whatever. But the new generation, this is a whole different matrix and tsunami. And we tend to think of it as just the same old drug problem. It's not the same old drug problem in America. It's much wider, much deeper, much more profound in our society. Right. So uh, what do you mean, wider, deeper, more profound? Let's take each one of those. Give me an example. Because I'm thinking I grew up in a generation, 60s, 70s, and also was a big drug generation. So I'm glad you brought that up because... I'm, somebody just asked me that. What's the difference between now and then? You know, okay, you say wider, deeper, more profound. Why there's more drug addicts, or are there more people? There's, who- yeah, there's there's more, and but the but the mentality behind it is different. I don't know um, how to describe it, but what I what I was doing and what all my friends were doing in the late seventies through the eighties and into the nineties, we knew it was wrong. We knew it was dangerous. We knew it was deadly. And, and we had a, an awareness of what we were doing. And nowadays, the 20-something crowd that's taking all these pills and Adderall and Oxycodone and all this kind of stuff, they have no awareness of how dangerous what they're doing is, that what they're doing is wrong, because the pharmaceutical industry and the drug companies and the doctors are telling them, oh, these are safe drugs. And so you have a huge naivete on the on the part of the of the addict young people that they're dying at thirty thousand a year rate. It's frightening. Bob, so you're saying that the drugs today are more prescription medications as oh, opposed. Yeah, to, for yeah. Sure. So they're saying this is you know it's it's legal and there's nothing wrong with it. And whereas when you were started out. It, you were doing illegal drugs, so yeah, that makes it a difference. Yeah, and what my whole premise is is that the drug treatment in America was designed for people who knew what they were doing were wrong, was wrong. And drug treatment hasn't changed with the times that these kids don't really necessarily think what they're doing is, is wrong in a moral, ethical way. You know, because they're being told from a very young age that you need this. You're, you have a, a Adderall deficiency. You have a benzodiazepine deficiency. You're, we're just giving you what you need. You're you're a flawed, you know, kind of person, and you need this drug in order to be whole, be healthy. You know what I'm saying? So the mentality by the time they get to us in treatment is very different. Yeah. So it's a whole different attitude, as you say, mentality, attitude. So how do you treat? So is the treatment different? Let's say that you've been a recovering addict for what 15 years. Um, and we have to say recovering because it's always yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, we won't go into that. But uh, so it's different. Is the treatment different? Because 
the origin? Well, I noticed that, that, that the old way, it was about 10 years ago when I was working with Dr. Drew at a place called Los Encinas Hospital. And for years and years, I had just kind of shared my experience, tried to help, tried to steer people. And it was pretty simple, basic drug treatment, and it, and it was effective. And with this new generation of prescription drug addicts, it was ineffective. And they looked at you like you were talking about Mars or something. Uh-huh. I had a client about eight years ago, and I and Dr. Drew were talking to him, and he looked at us, and he was a prescription drug addict, and he said, "You guys are. T- it's like as if you guys are t- speaking Japanese, and I don't speak Japanese. I'm not. I don't have low self-esteem. I don't think I'm a bad person. All this kind of traditional twelve-step approach wasn't working with this new mentality addict. And so that's why I wrote the book I wanted to show." This is how the old generation was. This is what I've seen in this new world and this new frontier in 21st century. I, ca- I call the new addicts like a Mach 2 addicts. You know what I mean? They're yeah. like <laughs> difficult to break through a denial that's not traditional denial. Well, let's take it step by step. You know, what do you do? They come to you. You're the, I mean, obviously, uh, and I am repeating this because you've experienced it as well as you are uh, a counselor. So how do you handle it, you know? uh, One of the things is to remind these young people, like, they're usually taking prescription opiates, right? And they, and so to call it heroin is very shocking to them. And then we have to get into a dialogue about, you know, this drug that they've, as we've done a great job of demonizing in our culture, heroin, how, how what they're taking is the exact same thing. And that's eye-opening to them. They're usually anywhere between 19 and 24 years old, and they don't think of it as a, as a dangerous, destructive, demonized drug like heroin is in our culture. So when you say Oxycontin is the same thing as heroin, they're it's as if a light bulb moment goes on, like, no wonder I'm throwing my life away. Because they already know the the kind of dangers of heroin. They've heard it since they were 12 years old in the Just Say No program. And I say, you're on the same thing. It's just coming from Walgreens. It's the same thing. And that's the beginning step of this kind of dialogue that you can have to help enlighten them, help them understand what's been happening to them. So you have to start with the truth. I mean, the definition, you have to define the problem as what it really is. Yeah, because a lot of these people just get trapped and they don't know what's happening to them. They just know that they need more pills. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's, it's sad, but it's also, you know, kind of, Interesting how how this generation of of addicts in America, which is also much wider spread, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was it's 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 almost in every. It used to be you. It used to be for twenty years in this country, you always knew somebody who was an addict. Like you had a, 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 a aunt whose whose nephew is an addict, or you yeah. hear about addicts across America here and there randomly. Now every family in America has an addict in it. Yeah, well, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's I mean, not tertiary. Yeah. It's not tertiary. It's yeah. firsthand. Yeah. Sons, daughters, mothers. You know what I mean? So we're an addictive society. Um, we really are. 
And, and so you're fighting against that. Your program is Hollywood Recovery Services, an outpatient program? Well, it used to be, but now I have this thing called Bob's House. I'm trying to, trying to just have a drop-in center, sober livings where people can get educated for a very relatively modest price. Another thing that's happened over this time is the increase in, in the cost of treatment. It's astronomical. You know what I mean? In the, in the book I go to Hazelton in 1988, it was so reasonably priced in the highest quality care you could get in America. Now, you know, the numbers are staggering. You can pay, out here in Los Angeles, you can pay $90,000 for one month of drug treatment. Does that necessarily make the treatment better? Or, I mean, I'm thinking about all the rehab centers and drug treatment centers in the United States, and as you, there are lots of them, and they... They have different philosophies. They, you know, how much they cost are different. Is is that the most important part of of recovering, or does the treatment facility kind of have to? You have to have a chemist. I don't want to. Use, that's not a good word. You have to have a a, a sort of a a theory of of how to how to deal with people. Well, it what fits happens? with your personality. It fits with your family. Whatever it is, that theory fits you, and so that's how you can become. You know. Um, become successful at becoming a, a recovering addict. Um, is it well, necess- that's in the assessment and the referral. There used to be a thing called ASAM criteria that was adhered to by everyone in the United States who dealt with addicts. That's kind of faded away in this new kind of Wild West, the uh, kind of for-profit industry that's become so popular. So ASAM criteria was you're supposed to Meet with a meet with a an addict who's who's having you know who's addicted who's having family issues or whatever. Meet with them, take a bunch of information, assess their needs, and refer them to the best treatment. It might not necessarily be yours for that particular patient, and that that happened regularly for twenty five thirty years. The last seven, eight, ten, it's if you're sitting in front of me, you qualify for my program. You need my program, whether you're a 19-year-old, you know, early, 19-year-old marijuana addict or a 45-year-old polysubstance abuse addict with decades-long history. And no drug treatment program can specialize in both. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So what's your criteria, like, for success? Or do you know what your success rate is? Well, I've been, I've been, I'm 360 degrees, 365 <laughs> days a year. I have this new idea that the, the thing that's lacking is the long-term relationship with one particular counselor or therapist. And so what I do is, is six months minimum to a year of twice weekly one-on-ones, and then I oversee and case manage where I think they'd best go. I kind of stepped in between the families and the treatment centers to get to go back to ASAM criteria, which is the American Society of Addiction Medicine, to go back to that where I assess the patient and I know all the treatments that are available and I kind of steer them in what I think uh, assessing their needs is the best possibility. And a lot of times, this, yesterday somebody called me about a, a 42-year-old alcoholic woman up in Northern California, 
And the guy was saying, should they go here to this like name brand treatment center that everybody knows? And I said, there's a bunch of you know 19 year old spoiled brat prescription drug addicts in there. That's not a place for you know a well accomplished alcoholic woman to go. I said, you need to call Betty Ford and see that sort of help in the community and that kind of steering is what I'm trying to do. And when you go to the right place, you have the best possibility of having success and catching on to new ideas and being open to what what is being offered to you. You know what I mean? I do, because I have uh, friends who have kids who are addicts, and that's always the problem. Where do they go, and how do they get there, and how do you choose? And it just seems to be overwhelming when they're... And, and and sometimes you know it doesn't work out usually the first time, and they keep going back to different places. And and yeah, uh, I know. And there there's always been. I'm so excited you know so much about this. It's so refreshing. The one of the things that happens with young people is they don't know much about drug treatment. Now there are drug treatments that are very beautiful surroundings, very tranquil, very peaceful. Um, you know, 700 whatever sheets. I don't know much about sheets, but I know that there's this big concern about uh, concierge service and accommodations in the treatment centers, right? Yeah. So why should a 19-year-old kid start at the top? They should start in a in a modest kind of nuts and bolts program. And if they stumble or fail, they should maybe get more intensive psychiatric help or may, you know what I mean? But because they don't know any better. So what I do with a lot of my kids that don't know the difference between treatment, I put them in a lot of the behavior mod programs like Cry Help and Impact and Pasadena Recovery Center because they don't know any different. And that's where you get the real nuts and bolts of what your problem is, what you need to do about it. And... And you know what I'm saying? Yeah. A lot of times uh, parents want think, you know, as a, as a consumer, you think in America, we say this, my friend drives one of these new Teslas. It's way, way, way better than my car. I have a Jetta station wagon. It's way better. It costs four times as much. We're programmed to believe that when you pay more, you get the best in America. And you do in cars and in guitars and in food, but it's not when it comes to drug treatment. It's just not. The highest price drug treatment is not necessarily the best drug treatment for that individual. Yeah, yeah I think that's a, obviously that's a really important point. And I, what about families? Well, how involved are families or how involved should they be? Or in your program, how involved are the families? Of the well, we've battle? got a lot of problems with our family systems that we didn't anticipate, you know, that I and I'm part of it too. I have a twenty six year old son that I didn't do the best job in. Because of the distance in my father and I and my family's relationship. Like I knew they loved me, but I don't remember my father ever hugging me or telling me he loved me. It just wasn't part of that generation of of uh, relationship with their children. So then I come along and my sisters come along and we say, Well our kids are gonna know that we love them every second of every day. You know what I mean? And we we just went completely the other way and became enmeshed and, and codependent with our children so that, that we couldn't let them go. We weren't preparing them, at least I was, and I won't speak for everybody, but I'm seeing a lot of it. Yeah. We weren't preparing them for how the harsh reality of life. We were keeping them safe and contained and, you know, trophies for just participating, and now we're 
in this mess with them when they're 25 and 26 and 30 and 32 where we can't figure out where they end, where they begin and we end. Yeah. Well, in social work terms, separation and individuation, that's what you should be working yeah. towards. And instead we are, I guess, working towards an enmeshment and it doesn't work. Uh, there was a big article in the Wall Street Journal about that, that, you know, kids need some stress in their life. They need to be able to handle things on their own when they're in elementary school, middle school, and we don't allow them to do that. So uh, it's a big problem. And yeah, and so that was your describing. Yeah, well, you your follow, kids... follow that all the way through. When our 22-year-old adult children are financially dependent on us, emotionally dependent on us, do not have their own autonomy, and then become addicted to drugs... What do we do? And what I suggest is you have a mediary, which is me often, where there's very little back and forth between the the client and the parents. Like, let's just take a break for a couple months here. And if, you know, I'll be an intermediary and I'll talk, you know, through and to and back and forth. But let's just keep it at a minimal amount. Because what happens a lot of times is the parents' anger, and I see this all the time, the parents' anger at their kids' failure to graduate from college or get their own apartment or get a job, it all starts to come out after the kid becomes stable after a few months. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, give us an example of that, though. The the idea is I had a client who had been in drug treatment nine times in three years. Parents had paid, you know, upwards of $300,000 for drug treatment, and the kid was still high. And so finally I got a hold of him, and I was like, with them and, and doing that. I do what I believe is you would understand is attachment therapy. Like, you can, you can trust me. I'm going to mm-hmm. tell you the truth, and I care about you, but, you know, I'm always going to be there for you, that kind of building of trust, let's say. And so once the kid believes that, uh, you know, there's this, there's this thriving or this coming of a, alive. Like, I got somebody on my side. He's telling me the truth, wants me to succeed. He's always there for me. And so I reparent almost, let's say. So then the parents at about two or three months when the kid is showing, you know, getting his own emotional autonomy and kind of making his own way, then they start with, well, when is he going to go back to college? He just can't sit around sober living and do nothing. I'm like, he was almost dead two months ago. What are you talking about? And I had to tell this one parent, this one father, that had these high expectations academically for his son, have you met your son? He is not able to go to USC. He can barely get up in the morning, brush his teeth, take a shower, go do what he's supposed to do, go to a little part-time job and come home without imploding. How's he going to go to USC and live independently and just kind of keep up with all the other kids that have not had his setbacks for the last three years? You know, and this is a, a rude awakening for a lot of parents. Like, we've got to slow down with our expectations that's a good example, and expectations. I think that is what it's all about. So you have to work with the families. I guess that was the point I was trying to make. Because um, mm-hmm. um, some of these families, I guess this ties into it, they are enablers too. I mean, what happens when one person in the family becomes healthy and the family has been kind of their operating system is to work around somebody who's not healthy uh, and, you, you know, you, the kid is now not doing drugs 
it changes the whole dynamic. They don't know what to do with themselves. Yeah, it's a, that identifiable patient syndrome. Yeah, that happens constantly. It's, and if, and I talk about that both with the parents and with the with the clients a lot of times. Like we've got a system here that's all based on say Johnny being sick, and and everybody says our goals are for Johnny to not be sick anymore. But once Johnny shows any signs of getting better, everybody starts getting a little agitated, a little anxious, a little nervous, a little bitey and snappy. And we've got to figure out how, how each of us in this situation, is, each of you in this situation is going to, like, learn about themselves. You know what I mean? Except that he may not be valedictorian of Stanford. Because, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the baby boomer parents had these grand plans for their children. Grandiose and, plans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to have grandiose plans for their kids, yeah. Yeah. And, Either because they and want this to... overemphasis on, you know, higher education is just unbelievable. I just read the other day one-sixth of all student loans are being defaulted on. So that means kids are living back home after spending sixty or a hundred thousand dollars on an education that has very little value in our society. Then the parents, are, you know, can you see the systems that we're creating for this generation of kids? And that's mostly who I'm dealing with—the nineteen to twenty-four to twenty-eight crowd. They're really a lost generation, at least the thousands that I see. Well, I would say after reading your book, talking to you, doing this interview, they're lucky to have you. <laughs> I love them. You know, I always believe in the future. You know, one thing my my uh, family kind of thought is I had kind of gone off this road that's very well detailed in the book, like a punk rock and drugs and and kind of Jack Kerouac, Woody Guthrie kind of philosophy of life. And in fact, they were you know a lot of Christmases were rough because I'm a loser and what the hell am I doing? You're doing nothing with your life. And in fact, I and a few thousand people in this country changed the culture. If you look at the way film is edited, that comes from punk rock. If you look at the popular cultural kind of the way things work, it all comes from that the 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 the, the beginnings of of the music movement in America. So, you're right. You have changed the culture. We have to say goodbye because it, yep. it went by very quickly. But you have changed the culture with your music, and now I'll say even and with the book. This is the icing on the cake. Bob Forrest, running with Thank monsters. Thank you so much. Loved your Thank memoir. You yeah, and good luck with your work because it's great. You do are changing the culture, one addict at a time. Trying. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker Thank with you. a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.